0: Good morning. morning. Wow, that's a good word. That's nice. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 if you have a Bible. We're going to be continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been now in for a few weeks. And it's basically, if you're new, it's one of the most famous speeches ever made. Uh, Jesus laying out what you might call his manifesto of the kingdom of God. His, His sort of vision for what the world will be like when God becomes king and his call to people to follow him and to live the kind of radically different life that he's summoning them to and it's it's pretty exciting but pretty challenging in places and it in the chapter we're reading from today Matthew chapter 5 we've seen Jesus lay out a a sort of vision of the upside down kingdom so every when the kingdom comes the people The favor of God is going to fall on all the wrong people and we're going to find people being blessed who you don't normally think of as being at the top of the pile. And then he says, and you are salt, the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world, and I'm calling you to be those things and to live them out in fulfillment of the Jewish law, which I am fulfilling myself. And that's what we've had so far in Matthew 5. And what then follows it is a series of unbelievably unrealistic sounding instructions that fill the rest of chapter 5. This sounds like the most unrealistic set of things you could ever ask anybody to do. The expectations seem so totally out of kilter with what people could actually live in normal life. And I was thinking this week about unrealistic expectations because my daughter got back from school and my daughter is four and profoundly autistic and cannot say hello. So it sounded a little bit absurd when we opened her school book about what has she done this week? And it says, this week, Anna has been painting in the style of Goldsworthy. And I was really thinking, I don't know who Goldsworthy is. She certainly does not know who Goldsworthy is, nor could she paint like him if she wanted to. For her, it's just putting paint on a page. And sometimes you think, actually, that wasn't a realistic expectation that some government department had for what my daughter could do age four but it's obviously in some file somewhere so that's what they have to say they've done and for some reading this chapter will almost sound like trying to get a four-year-old to paint in the style of Goldsworthy it, it's ridiculous things that Jesus is summoning people to or at least it sounds like it don't be angry don't lust love your enemies don't get divorced always tell the truth never retaliate be perfect it sounds crazy Most of us hearing it would think, well, yeah, sure, the world would be great if people could live like that, but we can't, so it's just stupid. Well, Many of us might think, you wouldn't say that because you think it's Jesus, he must be right, but something in you feels like you want to say it's stupid. And we'd argue, some of us, no, it just doesn't work. Look, anger is just part of life, lust is what men do, sometimes it's what women do. Divorce is, yeah, sad, but it's necessary, and truth-telling isn't always the best policy, and if you never retaliate, you'll get walked all over, and no one's perfect. In other words, we'd systematically go through Jesus' instructions and explain explain patiently to him while they're all wrong. The reason people think it's unrealistic is actually precisely the reason why it's so powerful and so important. I think it's just what Jesus meant, and it's really powerful and releasing to know that he knew something. One crucial thing that many generations of humans have tried to suppress that Jesus knew, and we're going to read and see what it is and how it works itself out in these instructions. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'm saying to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think the reason that Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount are so powerful is also the same reason that they're so sounding unrealistic. So let me sketch for a moment the two main ways of teaching people how to live. And you'll see the thing that Jesus knew that many of us don't. Right? The, the main way human beings teach people how to live is really through law. What we do is we legislate for behavior. We say, these are the rules that you need to keep in your behavior. These are the things you must do and the things you must not do. It's all about how you act. So you don't murder people, you don't commit adultery, you don't make false promises in court on all of those things. You, these are the laws, the rules about what you do. And they're focused on, effectively, the the actions of the hands, the things that you do with your life. On the other hand, Jesus. Jesus teaches directly and challengingly, directed not to the hands, but to the heart. Jesus teaches aimed at what you want to do. That's not how earthly laws work at all. You can't in our con- context, imagine making a law for the thing I want to do. It's impossible. But in Jesus' world, that's what you do. In the kingdom, you make laws, if it, not laws, you give instructions for the way in which people are to want to do things and what people are to desire and what people are to think. So he says, I'm not going to teach you just about murder. I'm going to teach you about anger, where the heart comes from. I'm going to teach you about lust and teach you about praying for those who persecute you. He focuses not on what people do, but on what people want to do. And that is the way, if you like, not of the law, but of the spirit. You need a new heart, and when the heart is changed, all of these things will be produced naturally. But the challenge is you don't just need to stop doing things, you need to stop wanting to do things. So laws focus on the hands, and Jesus focuses, if you like, on the heart. So for example, adultery isn't the root problem. Adultery is not the essence of the problem. Lust is. If you sow a lustful life, you will reap adultery. That's the that's what he's that's the way Jesus is rewiring things in this sermon he's saying you can make laws about this if you want and the law the torah was right the jewish law was right it should say these things were not okay but i'm now saying that actually the heart that produces that behavior is what really needs to change because if you change the heart the behavior will change too But if you sow lust, you'll reap adultery. If you sow pornography, you will reap in society and in your life sexual immorality or dissatisfaction in marriage or in some cases prostitution, sex trafficking, many other things which come from sowing lust in your life. And those things can happen, as I say, individually and institutionally. I remember a few years ago, I was watching an episode of the TV show Friends, which was one, one of my favorite comedies, and I was watching it. And there's an episode of Friends in which two of the characters are watching. They, they're watching the TV, and they discover that pornography is on the channel for free. And they think it's wonderful, and they watch it. And the, the, show, the sitcom, it's just a sitcom, so it doesn't show you anything on the screen, but it makes that the running joke of the show. And I was watching it and laughing along. And a friend of mine who'd done some work with sex trafficking came in while I was watching it. And she said to me, I just can't watch things like that because that's making light of something that I've seen the dark side of. And I find that as young men are watching and laughing about pornography objectifying women in that way, I've seen what happens when men objectify women in that way and sometimes it produces this. And I've seen the savage results of what happens to girls in parts of the world when men think about women that way. And so when I look at an episode like that, I don't laugh at it. I find myself thinking, you're contributing to a world in which that is possible. And I felt so challenged by it. I turned it off, and I haven't watched it since. That episode, it's a tiny thing, but I just it really challenged me. And I thought, what a Sermon on the Mount-shaped way of thinking. You know, this... I'm not saying none of you should ever watch Friends. That's not the point. I just, on that one, I felt I shouldn't on that episode. But it was the challenge was, this, my friend had seen the connection between what the hands do and what the heart wants, and actually saying, this is sewing something into your heart that will produce behavior that is very destructive to people. And I thought, I then heard the other day somebody say, what happens on your browsers is what happens in your trousers. And I thought that was pretty witty, and, thought, and, and true as well, right? So some of you, you're gonna remember nothing else I said. You're just gonna walk home with that. But actually, that's the Sermon on the Mount reality. It's like, I'm sowing this, and I'm reaping that. I'm putting this in my heart, so of course my hands are going to do that. If you sow violent video games, and song lyrics, and movies, and you encourage young men just to process their anger by exploding, you will, of course, reap things like, sometimes, domestic violence, and knife crime, and even murder. And in the UK today, we make laws about the hands. But what the hands do is what the heart wants. And so Jesus says, I want the kingdom heart to be the focus of what I'm saying. That's the thing Jesus knew that generations of people have been trying to suppress. We can't possibly limit the amount of this and that and the other that people watch. That's not, we, can't, we can't make laws about that. We just stop what people do. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. What people want will result in what people do. And so you've got to deal with the heart. You've heard this, which was true. But I'm saying this, that's where the real problem actually lies. So that's the framework, I think, for this section of Matthew 5. With that said, I now want to look at the two contrasts that we specifically have in the text. So if we could just put the passage back up, firstly verse 38. Thanks, Phil. On retaliation, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, don't resist the one who is evil. The eye-for-an-eye eye rule, which is common not just to the Bible, but lots of ancient cultures actually, was a way of making sure not just that justice was done, but that you never overreacted when dispensing justice. Right? So if somebody takes your eye out and blinds you, you might think, I want to kill him! And the, 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 this law it's called the lex talionis, often the, the law of just retribution, was imposed in order to get people not to overreact and the best analogy I can think of for this is when I was at school and you would, you'd leave your tray on the table and go and get a drink and one of your friends would lean across and sprinkle salt in your tea or whatever. And you'd come back and then when they left you would never sprinkle salt in their tea. You would take a teaspoon and put the teaspoon of salt in their tea. And then when you went away next time or next meal time they would unscrew the lid of the salt pot so that as you poured it onto your dinner the whole thing would collapse and ruin your meal. And that escalating principle, right? That's what this law was there to constrain and to stop. That's what it's for. It's about retaliation. Jesus says, I don't just want you to constrain your retaliation to an equal measure. I want your heart to change so dramatically that instead of wanting to retaliate, you want to bless and serve the people who are upsetting and opposing you. That's the first contrast. The second contrast is related and concerns your enemies or your opponents. You have heard, all right, let's bring it up again. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. Next, next one. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? This, is, this sounds ridiculous, but again, Jesus is saying, I want your heart to change. You've heard it was said, it doesn't actually say love your neighbor and hate your enemy in the law. It says love your neighbor, it doesn't say hate your enemy. But Jesus knows that that's how many people think about it and apply it and teach it. So he says that's what you've heard, but that's not right. I want you to love your enemies. And then what he does is he gives, over the course of this passage, he gives like six different examples of how you can live out the principles he's teaching with these two contrasts. So you've heard it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, I'm saying don't retaliate. You've heard it was said, hate your enemy, I'm saying love your enemy. And then he works that out in six examples in normal life and brings the challenge of what to do about them and they sound impossible. And we're going to consider for in a minute whether they are whether instructions about what you have to do in every circumstance, but we will come back to that in just a moment. For now, let's hear the full force of the radical challenge Jesus is giving. What does non-retaliation and enemy love look like in practice? Well, firstly... It means that you don't resist physically. It seems to be the challenge here. If somebody you don't retaliate physically. If somebody hits you, you turn the other cheek. I've heard some ingenious attempts to get out of the plain sense of that verse. People saying, "Oh, well, actually, it means that you, you know, you should." I have literally read one guy who said that's why you need to train your sons to fight back in the playground so that they know that they've got a cheek to offer. And I thought, my goodness, if you can make that passage mean that, you can do anything. <laughs> that's not what it means at all. It means somebody hits you, and you stand there, and you allow them to hit you again. I just couldn't believe it. And so it means Christians shouldn't use violence. It means Christians shouldn't retaliate violently when they are attacked. That's, the, that's what it's saying. We'll, we'll talk about some difficult real-world scenarios in a moment. But for now, that's what it means. So I had a young man come to me recently and say, can a Christian join the Marines? Can I? I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm thinking about joining the Marines. What do you think? I won't tell you all the advice I gave him, but just it's a good thing to think through. It's important to go, how how does Jesus' teaching mesh with the ordinary choices we have to make? But this is about not retaliating physically. Then the next one is about not retaliating legally. Can we just keep the text up for a minute, Phil? Is that okay? Um, So we've had, turn the other cheek. Then the next one we have is, just previous one. Next one we have is, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In their world, that you'd only really wear two items of clothing. You'd have your outer coat, and you'd have your inner tunic. Um, it's not that cold most of the time in Israel, and that's what you'd wear out and about. And so if somebody says, I'm going to take your tunic, I'm going to literally want to have the shirt off your back, and you say, well, you have my coat as well, you're saying, "I will, if need be, I will make myself naked in order to make sure you have what you need. It's crazy. But the challenge is, don't retaliate legally. They, what you want to do is to sue them for the shirt off their back. And Jesus is saying, no. Let your heart be so changed that you want to bless and serve them instead. Then thirdly, don't resist passively. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go within two miles. Almost certainly, this is a reference to the thing that used to happen in the Roman world when Romans could come and make you carry their bags for a mile and say, you now have to carry my kit bag. You couldn't go any further than a mile but they could make you go for a mile. And so Jesus is saying, when someone does that, don't just passively go, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not allowed to fight back, but I will just... And Jesus is saying, no, 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 go the extra mile. Hence the phrase we have. Except that in our culture, go the extra mile generally means, oh, they really go out of their way to serve their friends. Jesus means you really go out of your way to serve your enemies in that particular context. Don't resist passively. Don't resist financially. If someone begs you for something, give it to them. Lend it. Instead of resisting others, look to serve them. Then he says, pray for those who persecute you. And then finally, greet everybody, whether they're your friend or not. Pray for those who persecute you. Greet people, whether you love them or not. ISIS. Pray for ISIS. What? Pray for your boss who makes your life a misery. Pray for your ex who won't let you see your children. Pray for corrupt officials. Just think, what? This is an amazingly, ridiculous series of instructions that Jesus is saying. This is what happens when the kingdom heart takes root. It produces this kind of fruit. These are the things to which I am calling my disciples. Now, we could legitimately ask at this point, and probably many of us are, thinking of real-world scenarios where we go, but if that, then does that mean I do this in normal life? Does Jesus mean that his disciples all have to do all of these things all the time? Is that what he means? For instance, does he mean that a Christian can never go to court? Can't be a lawyer, can't be a policeman, can't be a judge. Does he mean that victims of violence should always just take it and allow it to continue happening? Does he mean that passive resistance, boycotting, marching, civil disobedience, demonstrating, is always wrong? Does he mean that we should give without asking to every single person who wears a bib and stops you outside the Arndale Centre asking you for a direct debit? Every one of them, right? You never, every time you go shopping, you're stopped by these people and you keep giving, how much do you want? Okay, give them a, until you've got nothing. Does he mean that? And I don't think he does. And I'll give you two reasons why. But I do want us to, not in what I'm about to say, to lose the hard edge, the challenging edge of what Jesus is saying. Because for many of us, we're going... Oh, Something in us wants to go, oh, at least that's another bit of the Bible we don't have to do. And I just don't want that to be the output of what we're doing this morning, just to be able to see Jesus is calling us to such a radically changed heart that those sorts of things will often be the results. But I don't think he's saying they must always be what you do in every situation. And I want to explain two reasons why. So basically, my rule of thumb would be do what the Bible says unless there's a very good reason not to. And so if you're hearing me thinking, the preacher is fudging it, then ignore what I'm saying and do what Jesus says. You're always better off. But I do think in this case there are two good reasons to think that Jesus doesn't want us to always do all of these things necessarily. And the two reasons are, firstly, his disciples didn't, right? So the disciples who wrote this down and wrote the Bible and transmitted it and wrote letters about it didn't always do all of these things. They usually did lots of them. But there were situations where Paul used his legal rights to stop himself being flogged. And it wasn't because he couldn't take a beating, he got beaten a lot, it was because he knew that the gospel needed to go to other people and he wasn't prepared to be beaten for something he didn't have a right to be beaten for. He's a Roman citizen, so he says, you can't flog me without trial. So he did sometimes use his legal rights and the apostles did sometimes physically resist evil simply by running away. They never took up arms, except when Peter tried to chop the high priest's servant's ear off and then Jesus said... You do not do that, and I'm going to heal him. But they never, so they never fought for the gospel, but they did run away. They did run out of cities and go over the city wall in baskets and flee. And that's, in a sense, a, a form of resisting evil. And so the apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin on occasion. The, the, the Jewish law court would say, you can't preach. And they said, well, we're going to anyway because Jesus told us to. So there, were, there are examples of civil disobedience there. And actually, there's examples even of the apostles not giving people money when they're asked for it. There's a guy who can't walk sitting outside the temple gates. He says, give me me some money. And they say, we don't have any silver or gold. They could have gone home and got some. But they don't. They say, we don't have that with us. But rather than literally do what Jesus said, which is always give money to anyone who begs, I'm going to give you something better, which is I'm going to heal you. So there are examples where they didn't, in every case, literally do the letter of what Jesus said here. But notice the motive. Notice the motive, why they didn't, when they didn't. It was always, it was never about retaliation. It was always because, I think the way I would put it is, in thinking through the issue, they think I am motivated by love for everybody in this situation, and it's not motivated by retaliation. So Paul doesn't appeal and say, you can't flog me because of my own skin. Paul says you can't flog me because I do have rights, but I love many, many nations who I want to take the gospel to, and that's why I'm interfering here and stopping you from doing it. And the reason why the apostles heal the guy instead of giving him money is because they love him and they want to give him something better. It's not because they are stingy or because they don't want to. And so the first reason I'd say we don't, I don't think we have to do all of those things in every situation is because his disciples didn't. The second reason I think is that The key issue for Jesus here and throughout the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom heart. It's actually speaking to the, not the hands primarily, but the heart. Jesus is not trying to give us a new case law. I don't think that's the goal of this sermon. Hey, here's now what you do in all of these different situations. What he's saying is, I want your heart to change so radically that these are, if you like, the sorts of things that will happen. If these sorts of things never happen in your life, I suspect the gospel hasn't fully taken hold in those areas. But I don't think Jesus is giving us expectations that we now have to meet every time. But nor do I think he's giving exaggerations, which are just, hey, if you did it all literally, it would be silly, wouldn't it? Huh? I think it's not expectations or exaggerations, it's examples. These are examples of the sorts of things you will do when you have your heart so changed by me, and by abiding in me and living in the Spirit. You will find that these sorts of behaviors flow out of who you are as a new person, Without saying in every individual instance you must do this to the letter of the law. Often it will mean doing exactly those things to the letter. Often it will mean giving exactly what the person asks you for when they want it. Often it will mean making no physical response at all. Often it will mean not suing somebody when they sue you. But there may be times when it doesn't. When the most loving thing to do, not because you're retaliating, but because you love them, when the most loving thing to do may be to... Sue somebody, or to put somebody in prison, to allow the legal system to defend you against violence. So an obvious example for me would be domestic violence. I don't think it would be... It's not the loving thing to do, to teach anybody, oh, when you are struck on the cheek, you just stand there and take another one. That's not the best way of advising somebody who's suffering domestic violence. It's not the most loving thing for them, it's not the most loving thing for any children who may be involved, and it's not even the most loving thing for the person who's doing it. Let me read you an excerpt from an email on that subject I got a few days ago from International Justice Mission who we mentioned on the video. We've been financially supporting them for some years as a church. They fight sex slavery around the world and they throw people in jail for abusing children, among other things. And I got this email and I thought this reflected brilliantly the mixture of wisdom and love for enemies that I think we need to pursue as Christians in response to Jesus' teaching here. This is what they said. Praise God for justice in Marilyn's case in Bolivia a man was sentenced to 20 years in prison for sexually abusing her when she was three. This sentence was much stronger than anticipated and we're praying it will send a strong message to the entire community and will restrain others from abusing children. Continue to pray for Marilyn's restoration and for healing within her family. Right? So they're saying, we are delighted that we've thrown this guy in jail for 20 years because we think it's going to be... Very good for her as she comes to try and live in freedom from the horrible things that have happened. It'll be good to protect other girls in the community and it'll stop other men in the community from going down that road. So we are suing, effectively, we are prosecuting. And then listen to the final line pray also that the perpetrator will come to know the love and mercy of God in prison. And when they wrote this email, they weren't doing a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But to me, that's what the Kingdom Heart does. That's a great example of how to apply these teachings in a normal, horrible, normal life. It's a way of saying, look, my, my motive in throwing this guy in jail is not retaliation. It's actually love for her, love for other young girls in the area, love for men in the area who will then be warned, and actually even love for him that he encounters the mercy of God. And as I read that, I thought, that's such a good illustration of how to hold together these truths in a complex world where often things aren't so straightforward. And the same is probably true, I would say, of financial giving as well. You get stopped in the street, and I don't think it's necessarily everyone who ever asks me for money I need to give to. Actually, I'm weighing up. If I'm giving this to you, it means I may not be able to give it to them. And it might be that I serve you better by giving to this charity, who then make the world better for you, than actually if I give directly to you. Might be the right thing to do. It might be that I say no to you because I'm giving that money to that organization and I think what they're doing is so valuable, it wouldn't be right for me to stop giving to them in order to give to you. Do you see? But the motive is not, oh, no, 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 I don't want anyone to have my stuff. It's all mine. That's not the motive. The motive is... I want to make sure that I'm loving everybody with a transformed kingdom heart because that's what Jesus is calling me to as a disciple. Now, everybody else makes laws that constrain what your hands do. Jesus is bringing teaching that challenges and cuts to what your heart wants, which will obviously change what you do with your hands. In this case, it means don't retaliate. Don't seek to settle the score and love your enemies by praying for them and greeting them. But there's one phrase in all that we've done, we've just skipped completely, and it's the best possible place to finish what we're doing this morning. The phrase we skipped is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons, or sons and daughters, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I love that what Jesus is saying is your heavenly father is just like what I'm calling you to do I'm calling you to be like this because he is I'm calling you to love your enemies because he does I'm not calling you not to retaliate against people when they malign you and attack and oppress you because he doesn't I'm calling you to respond to hatred with love and to respond to bitterness with forgiveness because your father is like that and he literally says, the sun rises on everyone, whether they're good or not. You, know, you do, It just doesn't happen that the bad people in this town, the people who are trafficking in human beings in, who might live in this town, do not find that the sun simply doesn't rise over their flat. It doesn't work that way. You go to an agrarian farming culture, you don't find that, all the, that, that Santa Claus has been there, seeing who's been naughty, seeing who's been nice, and the rain only falls on the fields of the people who've been nice. Jesus is saying God isn't like that God loves everybody even all the people who don't deserve it and it's at the essence of who he is that he's good to people whoever they are and that's the only basis I've got I think Jesus is saying for calling to you to be like that because if you are like that you will imitate your father you'll demonstrate yourself to be children of God confession time the other day No, not the other day, a year ago. A year ago, me and I can't remember how long, it was something like that. Me and Rachel and the children go to the swimming pool, and as we walk in through the doors of the swimming pool, on our right is the little infant pool, and ahead is the adult pool, which is always freezing cold. But the infant pool is lovely and warm, and Zeke, my son, loves going in it every time he gets there. Zeke, unfortunately, has learned one or two habits from his father. And what happened, as he walked in, he saw a no entry sign sitting there with this sort of little placard saying, slightly angrily, no entry, it's not open for children yet. Go away, children, that sort of sign, right? Which some of you love because it means there aren't kids in the pool when you go. But anyway, he doesn't like it. He walks in, he sees the sign, and almost inaudibly just goes, damn it. And I thought, I've never taught him to say that. He just knows that sometimes when I get annoyed, I stop and very quietly just go, damn it. And he's a son of his father, and as a result, he's copied him. And I felt bad about it for a while, until I remembered the example of my friend, John, who saw his son, Aaron, playing with two cars. And Aaron was driving And another car comes up And then he went And then he went, woman. And I thought, yeah, he's a son of his father as well. And I felt somehow better about it. The point is, of course, we imitate our fathers we are like our father and jesus calls us to this kind of love of enemies and this kind of praying for the ones who persecute you because that's what god's like and that jesus himself is going to do this he is literally going to be dying on a cross saying father forgive them because they don't know what they're doing jesus isn't calling us to the impossible ideal he's saying this ideal will be made possible as you are transformed into the image of me and becoming like your father who's in heaven because you are sons and daughters of god you will look like this and that's the motive and it's even the basis for the challenge i'm bringing you today to live like god and that is so liberating that for all of this thing about jesus is speaking to the heart not the hands you think i can keep the law if i just work hard enough i can strive not to do any no-nos jesus says no 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 I am now saying your heart needs to change as well and the only hope you have that that will take place is that you are a son of your father and a daughter of your father who is in heaven and you will become like him. So as we close, I want us to consider not just the goodness that Jesus calls us into but the goodness that the father himself shows to us in the gospel and in doing so makes us like him. Amen? I'm going to ask the band to come out I'm just going to pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are good, that you are kind, that you are loving, that you extend your grace not just to the sex trafficker, but you extend your grace to me. You extend your grace to us, to those rebels against you who have Badmouthed you and rejected you and I have this morning even been proud in some of the things I've said and been rightly challenged for them and in all of those things I have demonstrated I require I have to be dependent on the goodness of my father just to get in the room and I'm so thankful that you are always good and that your goodness shines on me when I'm good and when I'm bad and it shines on people who are good and bad thank you your goodness knows no bounds your kindness never stops and I pray that you draw us into an increasing appreciation of your kindness and goodness for us and to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?